This is a Podfire production. This podcast may include explicit themes or swearing and may not be suitable for children. The world is full of amazing people, and once a week, I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum, and this is Awesome Humans. Today's Awesome Human is Samantha Morris, co-founder of Blank Gold Coast magazine and the Gold Coast Music Awards. Samantha's a freelance writer, a fundraiser, development manager, a grant writer, a social media strategist, a publisher, a public speaker, and a wildlife warrior. Said that without a breath. As recognition for her environmental work in 2013, Samantha was awarded Youngest Strain of the Year in Queensland. Well, that's that's awesome. On top of that, Sam's also a solo parent to a hyperactive kid. Oh, she'll be used to me then on this podcast, so we'll be able to do this quite well. Sam, welcome to Awesome Humans. How are you? G'day, Brett. How you doing? I'm an awesome human, apparently, you so are. I'm feeling pretty fabulous oh, today. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> a hyperactive child and a hyperactive podcast host, so I think you'll be you'll feel at home. As long as you've got a short attention span and need to eat every three seconds, we'll be all good. Yeah, we're, we're um, yeah, that's pretty much it, pretty actually. Pretty yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, As you know, this is all about you. We want to know about your life and who you are and what you've done and all that sort of fun stuff, but we always start with, what's your first ever memory? How far back can you go? Oh, well, I'm really lucky that um, my family are from Vanuatu. And one of my earliest memories was actually getting in trouble off my mother because uh, I was about six and my job was to chaperone my five-year-old sister to school. Um, You'd love that, taking a a six-year-old chaperoning a child. (laughs) And it was a village school, so it was full of Nivans, um, people who live in Vanuatu and um, many of whom didn't speak English and we very rarely made it to school on time because we had to cross creeks and coconut plantations and my sister had a thing for cows so she would like stare down cows and bulls and um, we rarely made it to school. So one of my earliest memories was finding (laughs) out that my mother um, actually had someone chaperone us out of sight. Oh, really? Watching us? And watching us from a distance (laughs) to make sure we stayed safe. So that's, that's one of my first memories as a child. Wow. So yeah. you were born in Vanuatu? I was born here and my parents very bravely, uh, or maybe you could say very dumbly, um, decided that even though they had no farming experience, no agricultural experience, no idea how to grow crops or raise animals, decided to move back to Vanuatu and um manage a coconut plantation. So when you say move back to Vanuatu, what they were from Vanuatu? Mum was from Vanuatu. Mum's one of eight children who grew up um, in a house in Vanuatu with no electricity, no running water, um, you know, quite poor. And yeah, and her um, grandmother was a Tongan princess. Oh, wow. And actually a So I'm in the presence of royalty. 370th in line for the Tongan throne, I am. 370th. So I like how you know that. I Just know like that. that. <laughs> I'd <laughs> be using that every day. I do. <laughs> good, I keep track good. of it. Sometimes I make people call me Princess Samantha. But you we... also check who's died in the line to make sure you haven't moved up? Um, yes, but unfortunately us Tongans also like to um, make lots of babies. So. Oh, okay. So you keep going down <laughs> it's the a list. Very fluid number. It's a very fluid number. Goes up, goes down. Um, but yeah, we have we have quite a, a deep connection to Vanuatu and other Pacific Islands because of that. Yeah. So where did mum and dad meet then? Uh, 
they met in Sydney in Crow's Nest. They, okay. um, Dad was quite a bit older than Mum, 13 years, and uh, Mum lived in an apartment with lots of those brothers and sisters and Dad was a, a young man who, who wooed her as a, as a young woman. So is he an Aussie? Um, he's British. British, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So you can imagine how he coped with uh, living on a farm <laughs> in Vanuatu with no services. So Mum and Dad have – what number are you? What child uh, are you? I'm the oldest of You're three, the oldest? and the and the best. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. You're further up the line than they are to be the princess. I have more leadership skills. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think they call me bossy, but but well, let's uh, just leadership say leadership skills. skills. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that mm. one. So, mum and dad would, had all three children been born when you went back to yes, Vanuatu? Just one. One was uh, the sorry, all three, but one was pretty close to being a newborn. Okay, mm. and then. Someone makes the call. I did know what's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this, doll. <laughs> Let's leave our home in Sydney, suburban Sydney. Let's. Um, you know, leave our careers and let's move these three blonde, um, fairly pale-skinned children to a community <laughs> in Vanuatu that has no white people, doesn't speak English. And what language do they speak in Vanuatu? Uh, they speak, uh, they have a native language called Bishlama. Okay. And it's like a, a Creole kind of pidgin English. And then at the time we moved there, Vanuatu was under condominium rule, which meant it was joint rule between British and French. So they had a British school system and they had a French school system and they had a British uh, police force and they had a French police force. It, oh, wow. it wasn't a very efficient way to run a country. But the reason we came back to Australia, and this is actually a really good segue into how I ended up being an activist for all sorts of things, the reason they came back to Australia was because basically they got kicked out during um, a revolutionary phase. And Vanuatu's just celebrated 40 years of independence from the British and the French under their own uh, rule, govern, yep. government. And that whole um, time of fighting against that terrible um, so that was the time. Lo- locals fighting the, the locals British fighting the against it and that fight was led by my uncle Walter Linney um, who is really well known in Vanuatu for leading this um, charge for uh, Vanuatu to be an independent country under its own government that was a revolution that was a revolution um, some members of our family also printed their own currency and did some really uh, questionable things during that process. <laughs> but if anyone wants to know where my activist roots come from, it's definitely that process. From yes. your uncle. Jimmy Stevens, yep, led the, led the rebellion and then Walter Linney was the first independent prime minister. Wow. Mm, That's yep. exciting. Oh, it's, yeah. And so do you remember those times? Oh, I remember... Because um, how old were you then? I was six. Okay. So I remember mum and dad being incredibly poor yeah. and not having really anything in terms of wealth to offer us kids. Why did they move there? Did they ever tell you that? Um, I think they thought that they might be able to um, run a profitable farming enterprise. Yeah, and Mum also romanticised memories of growing up there as a child. Oh, okay. And so I think in terms of a childhood look, it was amazing. We had really didn't understand how little money Mum and Dad had. Yeah. And so for us, you can imagine, it's a tropical paradise. Oh, yeah. It's it's literally running around with no clothes on barefoot through pristine creeks and rainforests. There's very th- few things in Vanuatu that will kill you. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of worse places in the world. Oh, there mm. are, yeah, and we, we went to school. I mean, we performed incredibly poorly at school because we didn't have any language. Um, what um, did they teach at school? Like what language this, was that It in? was French. That that was we French. went to a school that predominantly spoke French and um, we were the only white kids at that school, so we were quite a novelty. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, you know, at, at later we went to a boarding school there um, where mum and dad thought it was better for us to be away from what was going on with the property and um, they would come and spend the weekend with us in town and literally didn't have enough money to buy an ice cream oh, you know, wow. or, or that kind of thing yeah. for us kids. So they remember it very differently to us. They remember it being really tough times. You but had no idea. My memories are quite beautiful of that time actually yeah so during those school days um it was it was tough because obviously you were the only white kid everyone spoke french and you didn't no how'd you learn um or you didn't well i guess we picked up quite a bit of french <laughs> yeah, yeah um along the that way. age as well it's probably a lot easier yeah it is and you know you think about what you need as a six-year-old kid and even if you don't have the language you it's about connections with other children, yeah. it's playing games, it's um, colours and counting and colouring in and Hand gestures, all, and all of that, that kind of stuff. stuff. And, yeah, yeah. and I, I actually ended up being quite academically inclined when we came back to Australia and went back into mainstream schooling. And um, and in fact, the first degree I was studying when I, when I met Lee, who's uh, doing the technical production of this podcast, <laughs> um, I was studying a Bachelor of Pure Mathematics. So, you know, you you end up being fine academically, but mum has copies of our schoolwork and we just failed absolutely everything. <laughs> it, you know, every stamp was not good, good job, great job. It was like, this is terrible, terrible effort. <laughs> Poor work. Try harder. But I had fun. <laughs> Mum, I'm having fun. It was, you know, I mean, in terms of an education for life, it was more important probably oh, that education that we got being Imagine if every kid got to do that. Oh, I wouldn't, we'd live in a different world, wouldn't we? I now work uh, quite a bit of my time is spent in conservation and I believe that one of the things that sets people apart that are really passionate about nature is the fact that they spend time in nature as children. Yeah. Um, not just at the beach, like, you know, surfing or looking at the beach, but immersed in nature, really immersed in natural environments, wild environments, getting wet, getting muddy, climbing trees, hurting yourself with thorns or getting bitten, hopefully <laughs> not by crocodiles. Um, you know, you experience that wilderness and that's what connects you to the natural environment. And I think that's what we, my, my siblings and I got in Vanuatu that a lot of kids don't get. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree 100%. Mm. So you're in Vanuatu primary school. When did you go to boarding school? What year was that? Uh, well, we were only in Vanuatu for about oh, three or four years. So mm -hmm. half of that was in this little village school, yeah. literally huts, um, you know, dirt floor, thatched roofs kind of thing. Um, and then we went to a boarding school in town for the second half of that and that was brick building. Um, Vanuatu is quite prone to wild weather, yeah. cyclones, earthquakes, tidal waves, uh, you name it, um, it, it hits Vanuatu. So a lot of my memories of that boarding school was just being absolutely scared out of my wits that really? something was going to happen and we'd be away from our parents. Did yeah. anything ever happen when you were there? Nothing that I remember. There were um, fires in um, when you harvest coconut for coconut oil, you burn coconut mm -hmm. and, and that's how you extract the oil. And, and it's called copra. Um, when it's harvested for oil. And so uh, there's always a lot of fires around burning this. And if you spend time in islands that grow coconuts, you would be very familiar with the smell associated with that. And so my memories are of seeing these fires in the distance and yeah. wondering if they if would come closer. As an adult now, I know that the risk was very low, but, you know, you see these things burning in the distance and think, <gasps> what's going to happen to us? <laughs> so the, when did you leave Vanuatu? What year was that? Uh, we left in the early 80s when independence hit. So what year in school were you? 
Uh, when we came back to Australia, I think we went into like year two or year three. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And we spoke uh, French and we, mum and dad, uh, in their infinite wisdom, put us in a Catholic school. Lee will probably raise his eyebrows because I'm not the kind of, uh, <laughs> I'm not a good Catholic girl. <laughs> and um, the nuns pretty much beat the French out of us and oh, really? said, you know, you don't, you must, the only way you can learn English is if you stop speaking French at home. So unfortunately, I don't speak any French now. Oh, really? Mm, yeah, unfortunately. So you went to the Catholic school for primary school and yep. high school? No. Um, we, we had a few years in Sydney at that um, Catholic school and then uh, we moved to the Gold Coast. Moved to the Gold Coast? Yes. What made that decision happen? Do you remember? Uh, oh, I remember. Um, Mum and Dad always worked in hospitality and they both moved to the Gold Coast to take on uh, management roles at Jupiter's Casino, which at oh, the time was called um, Conrad Hotel yep. and Jupiter's Casino. Yep. So we moved to the Gold Coast to, for them to continue their hospitality careers and we've been here here ever since. So what year did you come up here? What, I think that was like school? 80, gosh, must have been, I was in year seven. So gosh, whatever that works So in year seven, what school did you go to up here? I went to Ashmore Primary School. Yeah. And then I went to Kebra Park High School. Okay. And then I went to Griffith University Gold Coast. And not bad for a, a young girl that was on a, a sort of thatched roof building that didn't get any grades at all in junior school. No, that's right. I still love camping though. Um, nothing... It brings me more joy than being outdoors, uh, including with my seven-year-old son. But, you know, mum and dad's background in hospitality means I've also been exposed to the fanciest hotels in yeah. Australia. So I actually like a bit of both. I always yeah. say that I love sleeping under the stars as long as only five of them. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things. I, I did a lot of camping as a kid, <laughs> but I do like a nice hotel. I like both. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate both. Well, you can do that. Yeah. So you went to Kibra and how good were you at Kibra? Were you a good girl, bad girl? Were you a nerd, uh, a jock? Look, um, I was a combination of mm -hmm. good girl, bad girl actually okay. and I think that was really frustrating to teachers and, and in a way I've been like that all of my life. So I'm... So you got to be you, is that what you're I saying? I got to be you. But yeah. got to be you. I got to be me. You got to be you, not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not afraid to stare down authority if yeah. I feel that rules aren't appropriate or need to be changed or, or someone's not being fairly treated. But because I uh, was academically inclined and Kibra at the time wasn't known really for being a, um, a school of, of high academic achievement, um, it, it's changed a lot, but at the time um, it was... It's pretty much a rugby league school as it well, was it, then, and yeah. it, it, it has an awesome sports program now, including for girls, an awesome uh, girls' sports program. And, um, and, you know, every school has its strengths, but at the time if... Um, because I, I was performing well academically and I was interested in debating and, and all of these other non-sporty things. Uh, I was a bit of a, a square peg in a round a bit hole. Of an outcast, yeah. And um, I started smoking cigarettes quite young and experimenting with lots of other things that teenagers do. And I think that really frustrated teachers that they knew I was um, not always attending school when I should. Um, but but my grades didn't reflect that. So they could see the potential and, and then saying, oh, she's going to waste this, but you still did well anyway. I still did well. So they actually had no um, logical rationale for treating me any differently. And, um, Don't you, you find know. it really – I find this really interesting even to this day. Like they, they say, okay, that kid's – they've got to do it this way or that kid's a really good athlete, so don't worry about that. They've got to do this and that as opposed to just saying – 
how do you work best? Like, what do you do? How should you learn? All those sort mm. of things. Like, I went to school with some kids that were straight up nerds, some kids that were straight up jocks, and then a massive amount of kids that all sort of uh, did both. And we all went all right, but we didn't go full academic wise, like, because we weren't taught that way. It was mm. pretty much back in those days, it was beaten out of here, mm. like your canes and all that sort of stuff. But, like, to give kids an opportunity to learn the way they should learn, um, they'll thrive. Well, there's so many ways for someone to have a successful and happy life. And getting a university degree isn't necessarily the way. Oh, 100%. And performing uh, really well at a sport isn't necessarily the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the real way to have a happy and successful life is to find something that you're passionate about and then find a way to make that you know, a, a reality for you. And school really should be about, I mean, you need to teach kids the fundamentals, how to read and how to yep. how to do basic arithmetic and how to understand the world around you. But once you've done that, you know, how you apply that knowledge to giving yourself a really awesome life is unique to every person. 100%. Some people really want to strive to be a successful CEO and to make you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year as their wage and have a company car and fly first class. Not everybody wants that. I agree. A lot of people do not want that. They want to have a simple life um, with their family and to earn enough money so that they can go on a holiday once a year. You know, um, for me, having a successful, to ha- having an awesome life, I, I actually have three three things that I need to do to have an awesome life. And and now that I consult, every project I take on has to have at least two of them. Right. Yeah. One is for it to have a, a, a really um, significant impact on society. So it either has to be achieving something for people or for the environment. The other is it has to be fun. I, I actually have to want to do it. I yeah. have to get up and be like, I can't wait to work on this project. And the other is it has to pay me a fair amount of money. So if, if someone says, hey, we want you to give us a quote for this job, it's got, to, it's got to tick two of those boxes. It's got to pay me a fair amount and be fun or it's got to pay me a fair amount and be awesome for society or it has to be awesome for society and lots of fun. And as long as it does two of those things, then I'm happy to do it. So, But, but when I was at high school, this, this, these aren't lessons that teachers teach you. 100%. Um, and even back then, you know, I, I without having my thoughts organised, knew that the things I wanted to be involved in had to be making a difference to society. And I didn't care if I missed a physics, physics class as a result. Um, and then having fun, you know. Uh, if the weather was perfect, and I sometimes say this to my seven-year-old son now, if the weather is perfect, and the surf is perfect and what you're passionate about is surfing, well, actually, your rocket maths can wait. I agree. I, I, I agree 100%. Because tomorrow the weather might be shit. And it's shit surf and then you can go to school. Or we might be in a global <laughs> pandemic and you actually can't leave the house for six months. And you know what you can do then? You can catch up on your rocket maths, you know? Like, yeah. It's a great philosophy to have, though. I, I agree. I'm, I've got a daughter in year 12 and we had pretty much this exact conversation the other day because she still doesn't know what she wants to do. Mm. And I said to her, it doesn't matter if you want to do paramedicine or PE teacher. We'll be proud of you, whatever you want to do, right? But at the same thing is you have to enjoy it. Because mm. if you don't enjoy it or you go and 
do something just because you think we want you to um, is 100% wrong. That's mm-hmm. not what we want. Mm-hmm. And then she was still tossing up about what subjects to do. And I said to her, okay, he's, I've got a mate and what he does, he works enough hours in a week to pay his bills and to go on holiday. Exactly what you were saying, Amelia. That's all he does. And if he, he doesn't work one hour more, he'll go and play golf or do whatever because mm-hmm. that's what he enjoys. Whereas I'm a big fan of making money and I'm a big fan of making a difference, very similar to yourself. And the fact that if I can go and help someone or do something or make some, I'll go and do that extra 10, 15, 20 hours, whatever mm. I need to do. Whereas that's not his life. That's mm. not what he wants. Mm. So I said to her, what you need to do is work out what you want to do. And I love the idea of the three rules. That's a great idea mm. is the fact that have fun, make a difference or make some money yeah. or even better, do all three. Yeah, because, you know, if you're not having fun doing a job but you're getting paid really well to do it, you can kind of put your you your own joy fun, aside <laughs> for a little while, you know, because it's like, well, you, these people aren't nice people um, but they are doing something great for the environment and at least I'm getting paid really well for yeah. it. So at so the I end of the project, <laughs> exactly, at the end of the project I'll have fun with the money and I yeah. make up for the joy. Or it's this project's not bringing me a lot of joy but it's bringing other people a lot of joy and so you can sustain your energy levels. But the reason why a lot of people get burnt out or disillusioned with their jobs is not because they're working too hard because if you're working hard at something that is achieving things for you, you don't get burnt out. You get burnt out when you're not appreciated or you're not being valued or or, or you're not achieving the outcomes. That's when you get burnt out and that's what starts to have an impact on people's mental health or whatever. Oh, 100%. And I I think... I have that philosophy here at the office is if you don't want to be here, don't be here mm. because I'd rather you not be here than be here and be negative Nancy or anyone that, that's yeah. sort of going to come. Like we're here to have fun and that's yeah. part of our, our job interviews is that if you're having fun, then you want to come into work. Mm. I don't want you not to want to come into work. Yeah. And, and we've built a facility with a basketball court and a bar area and all this just for that whole purpose Amazing. because that's what we want to do. Whereas you get a lot of people out there that get thrown into a job and all oh, they have to do that because that's what dad used to do mm. and I must be a builder because because dad was a builder, even though I really loved motor racing. Mm. Um, but that's what dad would like me to do. And it's like, no, mate, go and do motor racing. Yeah. I've got one son that wants to be a mechanic. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. He'll do my car. Excellent. <laughs> but those, those sort of things, it's really interesting that people don't actually then follow their passion, I think is the word I'm after. Well, I guess we live in this capitalist um, kind of system where people are taught that the, the the recipe for success is to make money and tick these boxes as you go along, you know. And and going back to the education thing, when I was at, at school, um, because I was performing well academically, there was an assumption that I would go to university. At no point did anyone stop and say, what is it that you're passionate about? Yeah, and do you what want do you, to actually go? What do you want to dedicate your life to? And yeah. do you need a degree for that? Because the did answer you know? is no. No. Back then, though, did you know what you wanted to do and what good, you dedicated your life to? Good God, no. There's no way I would have ended up at university doing a Bachelor of Pure Mathematics if anyone had stopped me and said, what do you want to do with your life? And and I didn't finish that degree because... What is it? What's pure mathematics? Oh, it's um, it's basically the kind of maths that... Um, the, the rule, the mathematic rules that exist around us and, and you don't even know that they okay. do. But, but you like can... Like Freakonomics type stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in a way. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's basically all of the maths that exists around us that there's, there's no black, there's no grey area when it comes to maths. But... Um, but so what happened when I got to university was I was doing fine in, in maths and my study 
But pretty quickly, I got involved in student politics because, again, I'd come from that uh, background at school of standing up for what I believed in and for people who couldn't stand up for themselves. And within the first semester, I had nominated for the student council or student union, whatever they were called, and and was on this um, board of people that made decisions about students on campus. And that was my first introduction to to real um, politics. And that then consumed a lot more of my time than study did, and it really laid the foundations for understanding how... Um, those democratic processes worked in terms of decision-making, how to manage budgets because the student council was responsible for, at the time, you know, one or two million dollars a year, Um, how to manage events to to get people to actually attend events and how to listen to people, uh, in this case students, and take on their concerns and start representing that to people in authority, Mm -hmm. which at the time was, was the university you know, pro-vice-chancellors and people who make decisions at uni. So, again, that was a baptism of fire because I'd never done anything like that before and I was thrown into the deep end. I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. Um, I hated the politics because I've never really considered myself to be a political person, but I loved the political process of how you take an issue that you're passionate about and start to advocate for it so that something changes. Does it not frustrate you? Frustrate you? (laughs) Does it not frustrate you, though, that people don't listen, that political process where you've got... And the other reason is that I'm going to decide to not agree with you just because I'm on the other side even though I do agree with you. That is the the part of the political process that I can't stand because, I I mean, people would say that I'm quite left-leaning from a political point of view, but I don't... I just consider myself to be... In what way? What do you mean by left-leaning? Oh, well, I guess because I believe in social justice and I'm a conservation worker and uh, I work in the arts and so if you talk to a random person uh, that understands politics, they would immediately say, well, she's a lefty. Sits Would they on say you're liberal or you're labour? Those people. Uh, well, probably neither. Um, they're both Greens. quite. Yeah, they're both okay. quite central um, parties in on the political spectrum. But um, I, I would consider myself to be a swinging voter because depending on the politics of the, I, I don't care which political oh, I'm party. Oh, the same. Hundred percent. I want. I want to um, live and work in a political system that's going to take care of the the poorest people in society or the people that need the most um, and take care of the natural environment at the same time um, and allow people to make their own decisions about things. But, um, you know, that would be... People would consider that to be aligned with a particular political party. Would you ever run? No. Did you ever ever enter your mind? Uh, In those years at university, probably. But um, as I got older and actually started to work in four organisations that were involved in political advocacy, so meeting with members of parliament or senators or um, being involved in trying to lobby for political change. So these are people um, that would be unemployed if they didn't have that job because they don't actually have any skill (laughs) sets. Sorry, just want to add that bit. Some of them. (laughs) Some of them, yes. Some of them start out really young like I did, um, involved in student politics and set out to be politicians. But not everyone. I I have met, again, amazing uh, humans all across the political spectrum. Um, And and I actually have personal friends who are members of the LNP, National Party, Labor Party and the Greens. And so, and they're all amazing people. Wouldn't it be good to put all those amazing people together and actually create like... One person. (laughs) But but even like the fact you could bring them all under one roof and then go, you run that. 
That'd yep. make so much more sense, oh, but let's and, not go there. And those people have so much in common as well. Yeah, of course they yeah. do. Yeah, and, um, but the one thing I found out is when you put yourself up for political office or any um, public office like that, you're really laying your personal life open mm-hmm. uh, for criticism, and that includes every element of your personal life. Yes. Um, you know, I'm a single mother. Um, I Some of the, the things I choose to do in my own time might be considered alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's no one's business who of I sleep with, um, who they sleep with, yeah. um, wh- how my son's educated, what he's, uh, you know, it's just no one's business. But if you if you put yourself out there um, for public office, it becomes everyone's business. That's my wife's biggest problem because mm. I've always wanted to be a politician, only from the point of view because I think you can actually make a difference if you know yeah. what you're talking about. She's there going, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> always has said no. But she's also got the philosophy that I can make more difference not being in politics, mm. of actually banging on the right doors or similar yes. to what you're doing from, sort of, from, the, from this sort of stuff is the fact that have your say from outside, don't mm. have your say from inside. Yeah. Um, because you can probably say more. <laughs> That's I, the other thing. I like to be behind the scenes. I also take things really personally. So mm-hmm. if I'm advocating for something and it doesn't work, I, I, I'm like, oh, you. I did something wrong or I should have yeah. done it better. And that's not a good... You can't take things personally if you're a politician. No, you got to have Teflon shoulders. But I love being I love being behind the scenes. I love helping other people navigate the political process and work out how to work with politicians to change things, basically. So you never finished your period a math degree. No, did you finish any degree? I did. What I ended did up do? with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and Criminology, which I studied externally. Wow, so, that's different. Yes. Um, why, it, did, why did we go sociology and criminology? You know, if you, again, uh, maths is so black and white, there's no grey area. And I, and I basically went from a degree where you you were either right or wrong to a degree that asked for your opinion on things. <laughs> It's the complete opposite. It was. It could not be more different, and it took me ages to retrain my brain to think that way. But um, sociology is a fascinating field of study because it basically looks at at um, at society and how society functions and all of the things that uh, influence society. So it looks at politics and media and. Um, laws and how people respond to that. So it's a fascinating area of study and um, and criminology as well. I, I basically just did that because it was the easiest thing to tick off the subjects <laughs> and get a degree. And that's what happened in the end. And when friends say to me, oh, you know, my, Johnny's thinking of not going to uni. Can you try and convince him? I say, I'm not going to do that. No. Because university, again, isn't necessarily the, the end, shouldn't be the end goal for people. But that degree taught me all of the degrees, I changed degrees about six times in 10 years and all of them led to having a good understanding of how to learn, basically. That's what I learned. I learned so how to learn. If you could have a little whisper in the ear of Samantha in you, 10 or 11, what would you tell her? Um, what would I tell her? I would suggest that she um, talk to... Uh, people who inspired her at that time, yeah, and um, and and ask them the. So the, is that like um, like relatives or like people that are good in the business world or whatever? It could be relatives, but I I didn't always feel a connection with my older relatives because 
the society they grew up in was so different to yeah, the one yeah, I grew up in. Um, but role models in, in society around me, mm-hmm. um, people who I saw doing inspirational things with their life, which wasn't necessarily going to university. Um, I already knew that I was passionate about the environment. Um, I wish that I had connected with other environmental activists as a young uh, as a teenager and a young adult, and that didn't happen until a lot later as mm-hmm. well. Um, and that would have given me a better perspective of the skills and education I needed to do what I wanted to do. That said, um, none of it really mattered in the end because of the kind of person that I am. Um, probably a little bit like you, Brett, I'm uh, quite entrepreneurial and mm-hmm. I didn't really underst- even understand oh, what no an entrepreneur what was no, as exactly. a teenager. And um, all through life I've either had jobs um, or I've, I've applied for very few jobs in my life, three I think, and I got two of them. Um, and all of the other things were opportunistic. They yeah. were building good good relationships with people, um, reading and learning about an issue before I got involved in it. Um, knowing how to live below my my means. So I always had resources available to do cool things like travel, Um, buying a house as soon as I could. I mean, those things have all contributed to an, an awesome life. And, and I also just want to acknowledge that not everyone uh, is privileged enough to um, have access to free education, which I did. Yeah, mm. no, that's a very good point. Mm. So we've gone through uni. We're now, we're now sort of moving on. We're, we're, we've decided, when did you make the decision I'm not going to do that math subject? <laughs> when I started to fail. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. Is that when it was? Yeah, and look, if I hadn't failed, I probably would have continued with that degree and, and just not ever worked as a mathematician. I think that's probably what would have happened. Okay. Because by then I had realised that um, it didn't matter what degree I got, I already knew the kind of work that would make me happy in life. And what made you, so do you remember why or what made that decision? Um, I think it was having, I mean, going to, this is one of the great things about going to universities, you meet such a, a rich cross-section of people in yeah. society. And again, they do have one thing in common and that is access to education that we have in Australia. But um, being on the Gold Coast at the time, there was a really interesting mix of um, people from different cultural backgrounds as well. It was just the beginning of that uh, Australia realising that there was money in uh, bringing international students here. And um, so all of a sudden I went from quite a sheltered existence living in Ashmore with my mum and dad um, and, you know, they never travelled internationally uh, growing up other than when we went to Vanuatu. And... um, having quite a sheltered existence, quite being exposed to quite conservative politics and then having my eyes opened to this bigger world and, yeah. that, and all of the things that come with being an 18-year-old on the Gold Coast. <laughs> and, um, and I discovered a, a passion for live music, for um, pushing political boundaries, for being in nature and, and it was a bit of a no-brainer that I would start then that I would work in something that was related to the environment and that was related to communication. So they were the two things that became really obvious to me. 
and but I'd already invested two and a half years in university so and I was something. like, I have to get this degree. And yeah. and it had been drilled into me growing up that you are smart, you will go to university. Was that from mum and dad? Oh, everybody actually. Um, teachers, mum and dad didn't go to university mm-hmm. and I didn't didn't know a single person in my family, which is quite large because of the Tongan yeah, thing, yeah, of course. Um, who had gone to university. Well, so I didn't. I was the first um, that, that I knew of yeah. um, who had aspired to a tertiary education. So by then I had to finish my degree, but it became a secondary thing. Yeah. And I moved to Brisbane. Um, I transferred to Griffith University in Brisbane to do environmental science. And because I had first, that was my first time moving out of home, I had to get a job. And I had no skills because the only skills I had were hospitality skills. Yeah. And um, and I did get lots of hospitality-related jobs. But my first job, my first real job um, was a volunteer job. And I was answering the phones at a, at a charity, at an environmental charity, Greening Australia. And I, um, I did that for 15 hours or 20 hours a week unpaid. And while I was there, they found out that I had amazing typing skills. Okay. So in 1989, I won the Gold Coast Schoolgirls Typing Championships. Woo-hoo! You didn't mention that one earlier. No, so, so boys don't type apparently. Did you get a trophy? Uh, no trophy. Oh, <laughs> no big, internet a record. Big, a big belt? <laughs> nothing. You get nothing as usual. Um, but that those skills, those typing skills have... have allowed me to accomplish so much. I can't even begin really? to quantify how much work I can get done because Where'd of the speed I type. Where did you learn to type then? At high school. Oh, yeah. did you? In school? Just In normally. school. And again, because I was academically inclined, I was highly encouraged, strongly encouraged not to do typing because if you did typing, you weren't doing physics or you weren't, oh, you know, okay. you were choosing this this practical skill over an academic subject. But I persevered. I was adamant <laughs> I was going to learn to type. Yeah. And um, and so fast forward three or four years and I, I'm answering the phones as a volunteer and one day the receptionist couldn't come in and there was this whole heap of, you know, admin work to do. Yeah. And uh, because I had the skills, they took me off the phone and I did all of this other work and then the receptionist quit and um, and I was offered the job and I didn't have to apply. That was the first example of just, yeah, you know, just putting yourself out there and 100%. being at the right... Yeah. And the pay was atrocious. Um, when I got that permanent job, uh, I think it was $1,000 a month that wow. I received. And I, and I only got that because this charity got a grant to support new people, you know, a it job It was 1000 bucks more than you're making on another It was 1000 bucks more than I was making. <laughs> and, of course, it's the early 90s, so yeah. rent's quite cheap in Brisbane. You live in a share house with six other people anyway. So, um, and I lived on Two Minute Noodles and Green Cordial, uh, which is still a bit of a guilty pleasure. <laughs> Green Cordial? <laughs> Don't tell my son, yep. Yeah, cool, cooler. And you not let him have it? Uh, we have one bottle in the cupboard that we use when we go camping. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I might sneak one in every now and then when he's home. <laughs> you fill it up with water. <laughs> love it. Love it. Oh, but that was my... So then I've got this um, job at Greening Australia and I'm studying part-time at university doing environmental science. And just by answering the phones and doing admin at this uh, charity, I was learning so much so quickly that I decided I didn't need an environmental science degree. Of course you don't. And um, and then I I moved on to some other course quite quickly, and that was beginning the beginning of a lifelong career in conservation. So 
I love this country, right? And one of my one of my favourite things are awards that this country oh, gives yes, people, yes, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And the thing is that you were awarded the Young Australian of the Year in Queensland. Mm-hmm. To me, that I go tingly because, like, that's <laughs> one of those awards that you must be so proud of. That was, um, yeah, so that was 2001 I won that award, which is about, let's say, seven or eight, six or seven years after I got my first job in conservation and I won it for a pretty specific reason. I uh, was working with um, peanut growers and bean growers in the South Burnett, so around Kingaroy, as a as a facilitator. So I was going into these communities and helping farmers kind of work out for themselves what they needed to do to run profitable farms but also take care of the environment at the same time. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the work I do is still in that kind of space, yeah. So it's really interesting from sort of when you, when you sort of picked up this admin job to then <laughs> a number of years later becoming an Australian of the Year yeah. so again, of that type of work. It's, it's pretty a, amazing, isn't it? It's an entrepreneurial thing. I it mean, um, you. Uh, one of the things that sets entrepreneurs apart is, from other people is um, really being able to identify an opportunity and act quickly. And when I was working for this environmental group, um, I was constantly, and, and it's not because I was looking to further my own career, but because I genuinely wanted to to make a difference to the environment. So I was always finding things that needed to be done yeah. and either proposing to someone that I do them or helping find a way uh, for someone else to do them. And as a result, I became really good at writing grants. I'm mm-hmm. still, uh, you know, it's a very specific skill set that I still uh, have and I train other people now how to write grants. And I became really good at communicating with people, especially around contentious issues. So, so that notion of working with farmers or land managers and helping them do better in terms of managing the the environment. It's not always an easy uh, line to tread. Um, And I became really good at at engaging volunteers and getting people passionate about working for nothing, for no pay, to make a difference for the environment. That's massive. um, And they are all really useful skills for uh, someone with entrepreneurial mindset to take forward. Well, there's two types of people in the world. There's doers and there's gunners. Mm -hmm. There's people that are going to do this and going to never do anything. Mm. And then there's people who have a crack at life and that's what you're doing. And the thing is you've always done it. You have ups, you have downs, you have all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, to then actually then get the achievements makes it all worthwhile. Oh, totally. And again, I'll just acknowledge that not everyone has the same opportunities that you and I have probably had. But... um, um, I, um, I recently someone said to me, what are you going to do about your consulting business um, when the the ramifications of this pandemic start to flow through to mm-hmm. the environment sector? And I said, well, I haven't got a plan yet, but I'll be fine. Mm. I'll be fine. Personally, yeah. I'll, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll find, you know, people always need help doing something. Of course. And a lot of the time um, you, I can help those people get the resources they need to pay me or someone else to do those things. So it puts you in a pretty good position. Yeah. So you're the co-founder of Blank Gold Coast magazine. What's Blank yes. Gold Coast magazine? So this was a bit of a, um, a, a personality um, change, uh, <laughs> a career change in a way uh, about seven years ago when I um, had my kid and I couldn't travel as much for my consulting work yeah. and I needed to focus closer to home 
and um, and do you have children? I have four. Yes, yeah, so you know, um, and and the, your wife, your partner would know that when you are in that newborn phase, you have a lot of downtime. You're not necessarily resting, but there's a lot of time. Oh, sitting. I used to take the piss out of her all the time. But you've been home all day. What have you been doing? <laughs> there's a lot of time sitting, holding a yes, baby, exactly. wondering what the hell has happened Why did to I your do life. This? What has happened? Exactly. To me? <laughs> and um, and my best friend and I, who had a baby around the same time, had always talked about um, the fact that Gold Coast had a bad reputation, has still does, and that people outside of the city saw the Gold Coast as being basically devoid of any culture. White shoe brigade, that all kind that of sort thing. Of and, yep. and there's an element of truth there, to be honest. And um, we had uh, been in Brisbane for quite a while, myself and Chloe Popper, who's the co-founder, um, living in the valley. We both lived in the valley and would, you know, every Wednesday when Rave magazine, a street press came out, it, it was ritualistic. You'd go get a coffee and you'd flick through that um, newspaper style magazine and work out what gigs were coming up, who was touring, who had new albums out, what new theatre was happening, all of the festivals, you know. Yeah. And I would do it with my diary there, being a single pre-kid, you know, working out <laughs> what gigs I was going to go to. It was fabulous. And then um, we always thought that we would love to create something like that for the Gold Coast. And we basically took all of our um, not-for-profit experience and we applied it to establishing a magazine. We didn't set it up as not-for-profit, but we applied a lot of the same principles and um, we started a print magazine on the Gold Coast in 2013, which was a crazy time to do it. It was um, when a lot of other print magazines were going broke. Yep. Um, they were uh, amalgamating mastheads. They were... were kicking projects to the side because of lack of advertising and so we being in that um, newborn mother phase are like, screw it, let's just do it. And uh, seven years on, apart from COVID, we've printed uh, 82 editions. We Congratulations. Print That's massive. We went from that first edition, we printed 2,000 copies of the magazine. We had no idea how to distrib distribute yeah. them. So we, we physically got in a car ourselves and drove from Coomera to Coolangatta and worked out all of the different places where we could put the magazine. And so that was 2,000 copies. And five years on, we were printing uh, 12,000 copies. And we were distributing them to 300 locations between Beanley and Byron Bay. That's awesome. It was huge. You should it, be so proud of yourself. We are so proud. But, you know, it was more and than... And you, like, got a, the kid, as you like to call the, yeah. your, your child, but you've got the kid at the same time, like, yeah, and as a single as mum. As a solo parent, it's um, it, it's been an interesting seven years. I, I I think I nearly killed myself and there were definitely some, some poor mental health, periods of poor mental health, um, because it came back to what we were talking about, the the boxes weren't being ticked yeah, for me. Yeah, 100%. Um, but we, we, I grew the business to the point where I don't need to work on the magazine anymore and that's been fabulous. We have full-time permanent staff who do the work, including the other founder, Chloe, and I just kind of flit in every now and then to, the owner, to offer strategic <laughs> advice. I love it. And then I leave. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but then we, the magazine has been much more than just a magazine. It's really been a catalyst for um, lots of cultural change on the Gold Coast. We um, became really active in that because we couldn't help it. So we were identifying needs of musicians and artists and we were going to council and we were advocating for them to invest and to change. Um, we developed really strong relationships with cultural events all over the city mm -hmm. and again, so that was more than just them advertising in the magazine, but it was, a, a you know, really strategic partnerships. 
And now seven years on, uh, the city has a music action plan um, that they have written, the city of Gold Coast, and they have a music advisory group and they have a bucket of money there to support local musicians and music projects. And that's all because of you guys. Well, we it's not I'll just be because of, of no, us, of course not, but, but it's a you big know, part of often it. you need a voice uh, in the community to be there and for people to pay attention to. And even they do, if they don't pay attention to what you're saying, they pay attention to the fact that someone is saying something, yeah. and that means they've got to stop and pay attention to what what they're doing. Um, so then the other project that that um, flowed out of blank was the Gold Coast Music Awards. Mm -hmm. And after running blank for a couple of years, and again, this has come from our not-for-profit experience, um, it, it was hard to keep ca to smooth cash flow out for the magazine because being the Gold Coast, we have lots of events in spring and summer and yeah. then things go a little bit quiet in winter. And we needed to smooth the cash flow out. So we thought that um, having an, an event that brought the music industry together would achieve something for us from a, a financial perspective stability point of view, but would also achieve something great for the local music scene. So the first music awards uh, was in Burley Brewing Company mm -hmm. uh, in their new warehouse before anything was there. It was, so it was literally empty. a shed with cobwebs and snake skins hanging from the roof with Lovely. no power. And um, we were supposed to have it in their old facility outdoors, but it rained. So we, we pivoted to have it in this shed within 24 hours yeah. with brooms and stuff. 400 people came, we sold it out and um, and it was amazing. All of the feedback was phenomenal. Two years after that, we were closing the main street of Surfers Paradise. Uh, we had a huge festival-sized stage at the end of the Cavill Mall oh, yeah. and we had media attention from all over Australia. Uh, we, we managed to keep it um, uh, very different to what people expected, but we also had the perfect injection of classic Gold Coast. Awesome. We rolled the red carpet out along the Esplanade. Yeah. We had we made sure there was lots of media, so there were flashing cameras and, you know, <laughs> TV crews trying to get interviews with people, and we had these huge flamethrowers on the beach. No one could miss the fact that it was the Gold was Coast happening. Music Awards yeah. and that it was Gold Coast. But then we also uh, engaged some local artists to create a brand for us that people would feel was unexpected. And when you think about a trophy for something like Gold Coast Music Awards, you probably have an idea in your head of what that a might look like. like that, that kind of thing, you yeah. won. No, we have a, a, a character which we call Skull Murphy and uh, he is uniquely Gold Coast and he is the trophy that we give people yeah. and he's also the brand of the awards. So. Love it. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey to roll that program out. So one of the things that's happened during this pandemic, though, is obviously that that's been affected. And whether yes. it's the magazine, because obviously yes. that's been affected, but also the music awards, because yes. a lot of artists are obviously now not working. They're, they're releasing stuff online, but it's not the same, is it? It's not the same. Um the magazine, we just put in high, the print magazine in hiatus for six months, but we continued to uh, publish online and digitally and mm -hmm. we'll be back in print, uh, 100% back in print um, in October. Well done. Yeah. The, um, and, and the 
government support programs have helped us do that. But the um, the Gold Coast Music Awards was supposed to happen on the 30th of April. And if you remember how this pandemic um, rolled out, it was late in March that we were told was, we were yeah. going uh, into lockdown and that there would be restrictions. So we only had four weeks to change what was going to be closing down the main street and building a huge stage, all of that, to something else. So we put on a virtual awards presentation. And as I said, normally we get 400 people in our ticketed awards event and, and thousands of other people watch the concert. Um, this year, because we had to do a, a digital virtual format, we had 21,000 people wow. watch the awards. And it really um, brought home the fact for us that... Um, there is an audience outside of the Gold Coast for yeah. this kind of thing and that we really have no choice but to... a global audience. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. for sure. We have no choice in the future but to honour that and to continue with a virtual presentation to well. complement the, yep. the physical event. So that will be a permanent change. For musicians... Um, it's interesting that you raise that because we had a, a review uh, yesterday and we bring together all of the leaders of the local music industry and they help us um, plan for the future of the awards. And for next year, uh, where the, the timeline will cover coronavirus, we're, we're expecting, I mean, lots of musicians are still releasing music um, at the same level, if not more. Okay. They're, they're not touring. Yeah. But Gold Coast artists are doing an amazing job of staying connected with their audiences. Which is excellent. And that's the main thing. Like, if you can't perform at, at six pubs up and down the East Coast, if you are finding a way to stay connected to each of those audiences in those locations, then you're still doing a great job as an artist. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and the way artists have, have adapted is not surprising because they're creative people. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> if true, there's actually. one thing they know how to do, um, it's create awesome solutions to mm -hmm. complicated problems. And sometimes they do that by creating art, you yeah. know, writing a song or creating visual art or whatever. And sometimes they do that by the way they're connecting with their fans. And um, and Gold Coast artists do it, in my opinion, I, I am a little bit biased, they do it better than anyone else in Australia. Love yeah. it. Yeah. I love it. I love how you back them 100%. Oh, well. totally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what type of music are you? Are you a, are you an R&B? Are you a rapper, hip-hop, a country and western and rock? Nah. Punk? What? Punk? Metal? Yeah. Well, you can see your technical producer's like <laughs> is doing his own version of headbanging over there. Look, I, I grew up at a time where surf rock was the flavour of the yeah, day. Yeah. And um, and if it doesn't have guitars in it, um, serious riffs for me, I find it really hard to connect with. Um, I grew up going to venues like the Playroom here on the Gold Coast in the 80s and 90s before I was 18. And... Um, and it, it's interesting, Brett, because my dad, of course, um, being much older, um, always said, you know, you should, you're wasting your time going to these venues. It's never going to amount to anything. And last year, I received a $20,000 grant from the city of Gold Coast to write about those venues in that era. And nothing, really? nothing gave me greater pleasure than going to my dad with that letter saying, ha, huh, you told me going to these venues would amount to nothing. Look who's got a grant to write a book about this now. <laughs> so, um, so that book will be published at the end of next year and it's specifically looking at the heyday of Gold Coast live music venues of the um, 70s, 80s and 90s and anyone that was around during that time will know that it tended towards rock punk and the heavier end of the of the surf spectrum yeah love it yes. absolutely love but it but that said i genuinely genuinely love all music all of it 
experimental jazz, country, jazz. acoustic, R&B, electronica, I don't care. I will listen to and appreciate all of it. That's awesome. But if I'm sitting at home with a whiskey, it's probably punk. Yeah, Yeah. no, fair call. (laughs) Okay, the way I love to sort of finish my podcast with some quick fire questions. Mm, You ready? What's your greatest achievement in life? Um, Having a baby I wasn't supposed to be able to. Who's the person who's had the biggest influence on your life? My mother. Favourite food? Uh, Soup. Really? Yeah. Favourite song? Um, You have to pick one. Billy Bragg, Great Leap Forward. Favourite place in the world? Home. What's next? Who knows? Really? I'm open no to any uh, opportunities that make me happy, achieve something for the environment and, um, you know, do something good for the world. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Sam, you're an awesome human. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And thank you to all the other awesome humans that do awesome things every day. Thank you. Cheers. What an amazing human. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the Podfire podcasts and I really hope that you enjoyed Awesome Humans. Reach out to us on Podfire and all the social media channels as well as BJ Macker uh, to reach out to me personally. Have a great day.